You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Thanks for downloading episode 129 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last time, we talked about how, in early 1862, Abraham Lincoln had issued Special War Order No. 1, directing Major General George McClellan to lead the Army of the Potomac in a movement against the Confederate force concentrated around Centerville and Manassas in northern Virginia. Lincoln issued the unprecedented order to force McClellan to disclose his plans for using the Army of the Potomac and to prod the procrastinating general into action. And that was precisely the result. Immediately upon receiving the order, McClellan submitted a 22-page memorandum that, for the first time, outlined his plans. Lincoln's proposal had been relatively simple using part of the Army of the Potomac to move directly on the Confederates and hold them in place, while another segment of the army would maneuver to flank the rebels and cut their line of communication. The aim of the President's plan was for the Union Army to engage the Confederate force and destroy it. McClellan, however, preferred a grand movement aimed at seizing Richmond, the enemy capital, McClellan's plan called for transporting the Army of the Potomac out into Chesapeake Bay, then up the Rappahannock River to the small hamlet of Urbana, which was about 50 miles due east of Richmond. In his memorandum, Little Mac argued that his plan would open up an entirely new front, outflanking the rebels and compelling them to quickly evacuate Centerville, and they'd have to rush south to defend Richmond without adequate preparation. A rapid march from Urbana might even allow McClellan to reach the Confederate capital before Joe Johnston, the rebel commander. Little Mac said that using his plan, quote, I regard success as certain by all the chances of war, end quote. Abraham Lincoln wasn't wholly persuaded by McClellan's argument, but he accepted the general's plan nonetheless. The president had few options at that juncture. He could either force McClellan to adopt his, Lincoln's own plan, or he could give his approval to Little Mac's proposal. Or, of course, he could fire McClellan, but that was a step the president was not willing to take, despite his mounting frustration with his general-in-chief. And so, as we said at the end of the last show, Lincoln yielded to McClellan's plan. Meanwhile, during the month of February, The public outcry for an offensive by the Army of the Potomac continued in the Northern press, in Congress, and from the members of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. 
The pressure was further increased by federal victories elsewhere. In the sounds off North Carolina's coast, a large amphibious expedition under the command of Ambrose Burnside seized Roanoke Island. In eastern Kentucky in January, a force led by George Thomas had soundly defeated the Confederates at the Battle of Mill Springs. And in early February, in northwestern Tennessee, Ulysses S. Grant led a campaign that captured Forts Henry and Donelson on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. The success and toughness of Grant, who had demanded the unconditional surrender of the rebel garrison at Fort Donelson, provided a dramatic contrast with the inaction and apparent timidity of McClellan. In a transparent attempt to prod Little Mac into action, the new Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, wrote to the New York Tribune on February 19th, saying, quote, Battles are to be won now and by us in the same and only manner that they were ever won by any people since the days of Joshua, by boldly pursuing and striking the foe. As we said in the last episode, McClellan at first had been delighted when Abraham Lincoln had replaced Simon Cameron with Stanton as Secretary of War. Lincoln had been hesitant to name Cameron to the post in the first place, but felt bound by promises his supporters had made back at the Republican Presidential Convention in Chicago, promises that had helped Lincoln gain the nomination. But Cameron's tenure in charge of the War Department had been so inept and corrupt, especially with regard to awarding contracts to supply the armies, that his transgressions had filled over 1,100 pages in a congressional report. Stanton, on the other hand, was an energetic administrator and personally incorruptible. He was a Democrat, a former corporate lawyer who had proven his ability as attorney general in the last months of the Buchanan administration and as legal counsel to the War Department after the start of the war. Taking charge of the War Department in mid-January, the 47-year-old Stanton took the place by storm, often conducting business for 18 hours a day. He preferred to work standing up behind a high desk, and he would plant himself there, like the captain on the deck of a ship, banging on the desktop and calling out orders in a voice that sometimes rose to a hysterical screech. He intimidated practically everyone. John Hay, the president's secretary, begged, Don't send me to Stanton to ask favors. I would rather make a tour of a smallpox hospital. In appointing Stanton, Lincoln assumed that the new Secretary of War would get along well with General-in-Chief McClellan. McClellan thought so, too. Not only was Stanton a fellow Democrat, but he had made no secret of his contempt for Abraham Lincoln. It was from Stanton that Little Mac picked up his scornful description of the president as the original guerrilla. But although Stanton was a longtime Democrat, he proved to have the heart of a radical Republican when it came to how the war ought to be run. Within a month of taking charge of the War Department, Stanton had thrown in his lot with the Radicals and had become one of McClellan's harshest critics. After McClellan was back in the saddle, after his bout of typhoid fever, the Radicals summoned him before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. Remember, the Radical Republicans were those who wanted to wage hard war against the Confederacy. They favored a hard-nosed pursuit of the war, using the Union's armies to crush the hated slave power and punish the Southerners for their rebellion against the government of the United States. 
As you guys will recall, Abraham Lincoln, at first, in the early days of the war, favored a more conciliatory approach with regard to the conduct of the war and the restoration of the Union. And so Republicans with contrary views perceived a seeming lack of resolve in the president, and they determined to put some backbone in the administration. To that end, the radicals forged a powerful new instrument for influencing policy, the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. The seven-member body was called into being by Congress early in December 1861, supposedly to investigate the federal defeats at Bull Run and Ball's Bluff, but in fact the committee was given the broadest possible mandate to inquire into, quote, the conduct of the present war, end quote. The principal targets of the Joint Committee were Union generals, especially West Pointers, who were Democrats or were considered insufficiently opposed to slavery. McClellan, in the eyes of the Radicals, was the ranking suspect on both those counts. Not only was he a Democrat, but he was thought to be too lenient toward the hated slave power because he saw restoration of the Union, not emancipation, as the main purpose of the war. In December, the Joint Committee had summoned McClellan to appear before them, but before that could happen, Little Mac fell ill with typhoid fever. With the General-in-Chief indisposed, the Committee grilled his subordinates for any evidence that could be used against him. By the first week of 1862, the Committee members felt they had amassed enough proof of McClellan's alleged incompetence, if not of outright treason, to make an appeal to the President. On the night of January 6th, they met with Lincoln and the cabinet, but in this and subsequent meetings, Lincoln defended McClellan, even though he himself was increasingly troubled by the general's continued inaction. Once McClellan had risen from his sickbed, the Joint Committee renewed their summons that he appear before them. And during the six-hour session, Little Mac treated the committee members with impatience and barely disguised contempt. To some degree, his irritation was justified, although his expression of it was hardly diplomatic, considering the power of the senators and congressmen who were members of the committee. At one point during the interrogation, McClellan referenced the standard military procedure of securing a safe line of retreat before mounting an offensive, and after the general departed, Senator Zechariah Chandler turned to the committee's chairman, Senator Benjamin Wade, and said, quote, I don't know much about war, but it seems to me that this is infernal, unmitigated cowardice. With Stanton now in league with the radicals, McClellan felt betrayed and became even more cautious about risking the Army of the Potomac in battle. He was certain losing a battle would give his political enemies in Washington just the excuse they needed to remove him from command. And in Little Mac's view, this would be absolutely disastrous for the Union's cause, since, as y'all will recall, McClellan believed God had called him to lead the country's armies to victory. With this divine mission always in mind, McClellan understood he couldn't risk giving ammunition to his critics in Washington, so he would make no move with the Army of the Potomac until he felt absolutely certain of victory. In spite of his many troubles, McClellan took time to console another troubled man. On February 20th, 1862, Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, died after coming down with typhoid fever. McClellan, who had just become a father for the first time a few months before, 
wrote one of the most touching messages of sympathy that the grieving president received. In addition to offering his condolences, McClellan said, quote, You have been a true friend to me in the midst of the great cares and difficulties by which we have been surrounded during the past few months. Your confidence has upheld me when I should otherwise have felt weak. I am pushing to prompt completion the measures of which we have spoken, and I beg that you will not allow military affairs to give you a moment's trouble. In that letter to Lincoln, McClellan mentioned that he was, quote, pushing to prompt completion the measures of which we have spoken, end quote. Those measures were, one, the long-neglected business of clearing the Confederate batteries along the Lower Potomac, and two, the reopening of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad at Harper's Ferry. McClellan was under orders from Lincoln to clear up these matters before mounting the Urbana expedition, so Little Mac devised a two-pronged campaign to protect the flanks of Washington. On the Lower Potomac, below Washington, 4,000 troops commanded by Brigadier General Joseph Hooker were to cross the river by boat from Maryland and attack the rebel guns on the Virginia shore that had been blockading the Potomac, much to the consternation of everyone in Washington. At the same time, a larger force would bridge the upper Potomac at Harper's Ferry, above Washington, and guard the rebuilding of the broken stretch of railroad. Then, to protect the Baltimore and Ohio from further enemy attacks, the larger Union force would march southwest to occupy Winchester, the northernmost Confederate outpost in the Shenandoah Valley. By staging Hooker's move and the Harper's Ferry operation simultaneously, McClellan hoped to prevent the Confederate Army at Centerville from sending reinforcements to either point. On February 26th, McClellan went up to supervise the crossing at Harper's Ferry. Engineers quickly laid a pontoon bridge across the river, and the vanguard of the 23,000-strong force marched over. But to cross the main body of troops, along with their artillery and baggage, Little Mac had ordered the construction of a larger, more solidly constructed bridge. Mindful of the disaster at Ball's Bluff, when the rebels had driven the attacking Union troops back into the river and slaughtered them, McClellan, at Harper's Ferry, intended to secure his line of retreat, as he had mentioned during his testimony before the Joint Committee. The Army's engineers had assured McClellan that a larger bridge could be constructed at Harper's Ferry using big canal boats as a foundation and building the span on top of them. The boats were brought up the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal the following morning. When they reached the lock that would allow them to enter the Potomac, though, there was a problem. The canal boats, which of course had been designed to travel up and down the canal and hadn't been designed to be taken out onto the river, were found to be six inches too wide to fit through the exit lock. McClellan already had enough men across the river to safeguard the work on the railroad, but due to the snafu with the canal boats, he called off the scheduled march on Winchester. And, fearing that the Confederates might now feel free to send reinforcements to the batteries downriver, Little Mac also canceled the planned crossing of the Lower Potomac. Official Washington was hopping mad to learn the two attacks had been canceled, 
and all because no one had bothered to find out that the canal boats were too wide for the exit lock at Harper's Ferry. This glaring oversight drew a scornful joke from Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase, who said that the Winchester operation had, quote, died of lockjaw. The bungling at Harper's Ferry triggered a rare display of temper from Lincoln. Earlier that day, Lincoln and Stanton had given McClellan a vote of confidence by authorizing the procurement of transport vessels for his Urbana expedition. But that night, when they heard the news from Harper's Ferry, they summoned Randolph Marcy, McClellan's chief of staff, to meet with them. Brigadier General Marcy was also Little Mac's father-in-law, and he later telegraphed McClellan that the president, quote, was in a hell of a rage, end quote. Lincoln angrily asked, quote, Why in the nation, General Marcy, couldn't the general have known whether a boat would go through that lock before spending a million dollars getting them there? I am no engineer, but it seems to me that if I wished to know whether a boat would go through a hole or a lock, common sense would teach me to go and measure it. Everything seems to fail. The impression is daily gaining ground that the general does not intend to do anything, end quote. Realizing the president's patience with McClellan was sorely strained, the members of the joint committee took the opportunity to again press Lincoln to either force McClellan to fight or fire him. In response, Lincoln asked the committee's chairman, Benjamin Wade, If I remove McClellan, whom shall I put in command? Well, anybody, was Wade's, was Wade's reply. Lincoln said, Wade, anybody will do for you, but not for me. I must have somebody. I must use the tool I have. Nevertheless, the president's doubts about his general-in-chief continued to deepen. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As we've mentioned previously, that winter, Abraham Lincoln didn't have a monopoly on presidential frustration over relations with top military commanders. 
In Richmond, Jefferson Davis also had to contend with strained relationships with generals, not to mention a rising tide of impatience in the Confederate Congress and Southern newspapers. Davis was not only unlike Lincoln in temperament, though he also had been a soldier. Davis was a graduate of West Point, had served as an officer in the U.S. Army, had distinguished himself leading Mississippi volunteers in combat in the war with Mexico, and later served capably as Secretary of War. It was Davis's very familiarity with military matters, however, that led to disputes with some of his field commanders. Some of Jefferson Davis's disputes with his generals stemmed from strategy, to be sure, but clashes between the Confederate president and P.G.T. Beauregard and Joseph E. Johnston had been caused less by disagreements over strategy than by irreconcilable personality conflicts. Unlike Lincoln, who could shrug off a snub by his general-in-chief, the touchy Davis was, as a Richmond newspaper editor said, quote, ready for any quarrel with any and everybody at any time and all times, end quote. Davis ended up shuffling Beauregard out west, but Davis's problems with Joe Johnston ran deeper, and he felt constrained to treat him more cautiously than he had Beauregard. Johnston was highly regarded by his fellow officers and was beloved by the rank-and-file soldiers of the Confederate Army in Northern Virginia. Through the autumn of 1861 and into the winter, Davis and Joe Johnston bickered vigorously, often joined by Judah P. Benjamin, the recently appointed Confederate Secretary of War. Like his northern counterpart, Edwin Stanton, Benjamin was a brilliant lawyer and former attorney general with no military background, but was an energetic administrator. On February 19th, Joe Johnston was summoned to a day-long strategy meeting with Jefferson Davis and the cabinet in Richmond. All of the news was bad. The recent seizure of Roanoke Island on the North Carolina coast had opened up the back door to the important rebel base at Norfolk, Virginia. In Tennessee, Davis's favorite general, Albert Sidney Johnston, was in full retreat after losing Forts Henry and Donelson to Ulysses S. Grant. Joe Johnston brought more bad news to the meeting. He said that his position around Centerville and Manassas would soon become untenable. The good spring weather would make it possible for McClellan to attack with superior forces. To preempt being caught in an unfavorable position, Johnston recommended a withdrawal to the south just as soon as the roads dried out enough to support wagons and artillery. When Davis asked how far southward the army would withdraw, Johnston said that he did not know yet, since he wasn't familiar with the terrain to his rear. Although Davis at the time didn't dispute Johnston's recommendation for a withdrawal, he later called the general's ignorance of the ground behind him, quote, inexplicable on any other theory than that he had neglected the primary duty of a commander, end quote. Three days later, on February 22nd, even as Jefferson Davis, in Richmond, was taking his oath of office as the popularly elected president of the Confederacy, Joe Johnston was taking steps at his Centerville headquarters that would make Davis deeply unhappy, had the president known about them, that is. At the strategy meeting in Richmond, no date had been set for the Army's withdrawal south, but Johnston had already decided that the sooner it was done, the better. Two incidents convinced the general of the need to move quickly. 
After his meeting with Davis in the cabinet, Johnston had returned to his Richmond hotel to find that the lobby was already abuzz with rumors of his impending withdrawal from Centerville. And then on the train back to Manassas, the general ran into an acquaintance who had heard the same rumor, even though, as Johnston noted, the man was, quote, too deaf to hear conversation not intended for his ear, end quote. That cinched it, as far as Johnston was concerned. If even the deaf knew that the army's withdrawal was imminent, then it wouldn't be long before McClellan also found out about it. Johnston decided to immediately begin shipping surplus stores out and preparing the army to fall back to the south. And since Davis and the cabinet obviously couldn't keep a secret, the general also decided not to inform anyone in Richmond of his plans. Pulling out of Centerville and Manassas was an enormous undertaking. The army had not only accumulated mountains of personal baggage in the encampments, but worse, the Confederate commissary department, over Johnston's protest, had stockpiled twice the reserve rations he wanted, and had even built a meatpacking plant nearby where more than two million pounds of bacon and salted beef were now piled up dangerously close to the front lines. Because horse-drawn wagons quickly bogged down on the muddy roads, Johnston had to rely on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad to move nearly everything south. But the railroad had only a single track and practically no sidings, so traffic along the line soon became so snarled that some trains took 36 hours to crawl the 60 miles from Manassas south to the junction at Gordonsville. Johnston kept complaining to Richmond about the state of affairs at Centerville and about management of the railroad, but not once did he make it clear to Davis or the War Department that he was actually in the process of pulling out. In fact, Jefferson Davis, completely clueless that the withdrawal was taking place, was writing to Johnston, urging him that in the event of an evacuation, he was to save as much material as possible, especially the Army's heavy guns, even if it meant a delay. But Johnston ignored the President's letter. Every report of federal activity, from the operation at Harper's Ferry to suspicious activity along the Lower Potomac, also persuaded the General that McClellan knew of his plans and would move to outflank the Centerville position before the Confederates could get out. On March 7th, Johnston ordered all of his troops east of the Blue Ridge Mountains, about 42,000 men, to fall back to the Rappahannock River, nearly halfway to Richmond. Only 5,400 men under Stonewall Jackson out in the Shenandoah Valley were exempt from the orders. They were to remain at their positions around Winchester in the northern end of the valley. By the evening of Sunday, March 9th, the last of Johnston's infantry had evacuated their fortifications around Centerville and Manassas. Most of the heavy guns were left behind, some spiked, but many still in working order. The rear guard cavalry put the torch to rail cars, storehouses, and a million pounds of meat. The smell of burning bacon wafting across the countryside allegedly provided Union scouts with one of the first signs that the rebels had pulled out and word of this development was quickly sent to McClellan in Washington. At this, the Union General-in-Chief was better informed than the Confederate President, since the next day, March 10th, Jefferson Davis was still so ignorant of Joe Johnston's plans that he telegraphed the General's headquarters at Centerville, 
promising reinforcements for the army, and even suggesting an offensive could be launched from there as soon as the roads dried. But Joe Johnston never received that wire from Jefferson Davis. The general was en route south to the Rappahannock, where three days later he finally got around to informing Richmond that the army was establishing a new line of defense along the river. For McClellan, the startling news of the Confederate withdrawal from northern Virginia marked the culmination of an extraordinary week, a week filled with sudden shocks and reverses that made it seem to Little Mac that everyone and everything was conspiring against him, not only the Confederates and his political enemies, but fate itself. McClellan had been discouraged by the failed attempt on February 27th to squeeze the canal boats through the lock at Harper's Ferry and the cancellation of the march on Winchester. Then came a weekend of painful blows. In a meeting, Lincoln chastised Little Mac for the failure at Harper's Ferry. This rebuke stunned McClellan since Stanton had just assured him that the president was, quote, fully satisfied although his father-in-law's notice that Lincoln had been in a rage over the incident with the canal boats should have warned McClellan that the president was far from satisfied with the state of affairs. At any rate, then, according to McClellan's version of the story, Lincoln said he was having second thoughts about the general's plan to open a new front and attack Richmond by way of a landing at Urbana. People had been telling him, Lincoln said, that the whole thing was a treasonous plot to remove the Army of the Potomac from in front of Washington and thus leave the capital vulnerable to a rebel assault. Stung by this charge, McClellan sprang to his feet and demanded an apology and to know who had said such things. The President assured Little Mac that he himself didn't believe the charge, but nonetheless McClellan vowed to muster support for his view that the Urbana plan was militarily sound. He hurried back to his headquarters and summoned his 12 division commanders to a hurried conference. When the generals gathered, Little Mac explained the situation and had them vote on the soundness of his strategy. He returned to the White House that afternoon, generals in tow, to announce the results, 8 to 4 in favor of the Urbana plan. Just when that matter seemed to be settled satisfactorily, two orders from the president were dropped on Little Mac's desk. One formally approved the Urbana plan, but set certain conditions, these being, one, McClellan must leave the defenses of Washington, quote, entirely secure. Two, he must obtain the agreement of his senior officers on the number of men to be left behind guarding Washington. Three, he must move no more than half his force until the pesky rebel blockade of the Lower Potomac was lifted, and four, the Army of the Potomac had to get moving within the next ten days. Little Mac felt that order was an unwarranted infringement on his authority, but he found the second order even more offensive. It grouped the twelve divisions of the Army of the Potomac into four corps and designated four senior generals, McDowell, Sumner, Heinzelman, and Keyes, as commanders of the new formations. McClellan didn't oppose the idea of forming the army into corps. In fact, he had already discussed it with the president some weeks before. 
But he had told Lincoln that he wanted to wait until his division commanders had been tested under his command in combat before he selected the corps commanders. Not only had McClellan been denied this opportunity, but three of the four men chosen for him, Heinzelman, Sumner, and McDowell, had cast votes against the Urbana plan. The following morning, Sunday, March 9th, news reached Washington of a potentially dire threat to McClellan's plan to make a waterborne landing at Urbana. The Confederate ironclad CSS Virginia had sortied out into Hampton Roads and trounced the Union blockading squadron there. With the rebel ironclad on the rampage, McClellan dare not send his army on transports out into the Chesapeake Bay. This concern was only eased when the Telegraph delivered the news that the new Federal ironclad, USS Monitor, had engaged the Virginia in an epic battle and had fought her to a draw. Yet there was no relief for McClellan. As he conferred that evening with Lincoln and Stanton, word came confirming earlier reports of the Confederate withdrawal from Centerville and Manassas. The President's private secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay, neither of whom was a fan of Little Max, reported that the general received the news, quote, with incredulity which at last gave way to stupefaction. McClellan hurried across the Potomac to prepare his army for the pursuit of the retreating rebels. He recognized the irony of chasing an enemy force that he had insisted all winter was too strong to attack. Attorney General Edward Bates harshly said that, now that the Confederates were gone, Little Mac's advance on Centerville was, quote, a fool's errand. At first light on Monday, March 10th, columns of federal troops streamed out of their camps around Washington and marched southwest. When the men reached Centerville and Manassas, there were no rebels to fight, just smoldering supplies and abandoned fortifications, which included a number of so-called Quaker guns, which were logs carved and painted black to resemble a cannon to fool anyone observing them from a distance. Newspaper reporters accompanying the Army's march gleefully took note of the Quaker guns and also pointed out that the empty enemy camps could not possibly have accommodated even half of the 150,000 Confederates that McClellan had thought were there all winter. A correspondent from the New York Tribune mockingly datelined his dispatch, Camp Disappointment, near Centerville. To cap off McClellan's distressing week, he received news that he was no longer General-in-Chief of the Union's armies. Worse, he received the news from friends in Washington who had read of his demotion in the newspapers and telegraphed Little Mac at his field headquarters at Fairfax Courthouse. Official notification conveyed by a presidential courier arrived only afterward. Lincoln justified the demotion on the ground that McClellan, having personally taken the field with the Army of the Potomac, couldn't devote the necessary attention to the other battlefronts and the other Union armies. That was true, but it was also true that the decision wouldn't have been made without the maneuvering of Stanton and the Radicals, who were determined to take Little Mac down a notch. In any event, the various federal commanders were ordered to report from then on directly to the Secretary of War. Stanton, having acted to depose McClellan from one job, was also scheming to dislodge him as commander of the Army of the Potomac. While McClellan was in the field, Stanton brought in 64-year-old Ethan Allen Hitchcock as a possible successor to Little Mac. 
Hitchcock was a retired West Pointer named after his grandfather, the Revolutionary War hero. By his own admission, Hitchcock was a poor choice to take command of an army in the field. He considered himself a, quote, scholar rather than a warrior, end quote, who was interested in mysticism and philosophy and was in ill health. Hitchcock quickly deflected Stanton's suggestion that he replace McClellan, although he did agree to serve as a military advisor to the Secretary of War. McClellan was unaware of Stanton's maneuverings, and surprisingly, he accepted his demotion with remarkable composure. He wrote to Lincoln, saying, quote, I shall work just as cheerfully as before. End quote. Little Mac's main concern at the moment was what to do with his army. An advance much beyond Manassas seemed out of the question. In their retreat to the south bank of the Rappahannock, the Confederates had burned a dozen or more bridges behind them, and the streams were so swollen and roads so muddy that a body of Federal cavalry sent out to challenge the rebel rear guard turned back exhausted before getting much more than halfway to the Rappahannock. McClellan recognized that Joe Johnston's unexpected withdrawal had rendered his long-cherished Urbana plan no longer practical. The rebel retreat had frustrated Little Mac's design to outflank the enemy. In fact, Johnston's new line on the Rappahannock put him in a good position to quickly foil a landing at Urbana. So the Urbana operation was ruined, and Little Mac would have to come up with some other plan. But despite the recent march to Manassas, McClellan still didn't want to try to advance from there, overland to Richmond, since that would still bring him up against the Confederates' main strength. After pondering the matter, McClellan presented another scheme to his four new corps commanders. This idea wasn't a fresh one. Little Mac had previously considered it as an option to the Urbana landing. This plan also called for an amphibious movement of the Army of the Potomac, but this time farther down the Chesapeake to the tip of the peninsula in eastern Virginia. There, Fort Monroe, which had remained firmly in federal hands since the start of the war, would provide a secure base for a march up the peninsula to Richmond. The four corps commanders endorsed McClellan's proposal, but with several conditions. Most notably, the Navy must guarantee full cooperation with the Army's operations on the peninsula, and enough troops must be left behind to defend Washington and give the capital, quote, an entire feeling of security, end quote. With regard to the Navy's cooperation, the generals were concerned about the CSS Virginia, which had retreated after its battle with the Monitor, but the rebel ironclads' continued existence represented a potential threat on the southern side of the peninsula. So McClellan would need to know he could count on naval support on the York River on the north side of the peninsula. And with regard to the security of Washington, well, these were administration-appointed generals, after all, and they were well aware of the president's previous stipulation that enough troops be left behind to protect the capital. At any rate, McClellan agreed with his corps commander's conditions, and with his political flank secured, these were, after all, administration-appointed generals who had endorsed his plan, Little Mac received Lincoln's approval to proceed with the peninsula operation. McClellan marched the main body of the army back to Alexandria on the Virginia side of the Potomac across from Washington. 
There, dozens of ships of every description, from ocean-going vessels to river steamers to barges and tugs, had already been assembled for the aborted Urbana operation. As he watched over the preparations for the new expedition, McClellan's spirit soared. He felt he was again in the good graces of Lincoln. In a letter to Samuel Barlow, a prominent lawyer and Democratic leader in New York, McClellan said, quote, The President is all right. He is my strongest friend. On Monday, March 17th, only a week after the embarrassing march to Manassas, the first of McClellan's divisions embarked at Alexandria, bound for the peninsula. It was one day ahead of the deadline imposed by the President. In a letter to Stanton, Little Mac assured the Secretary of War that, quote, The worst is over. Rely upon it that I will carry through this thing handsomely. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Echoes of Glory, Illustrated Atlas of the Civil War by the editors of Time Life Books. This Civil War atlas is part of a three-volume set titled Echoes of Glory, and the other two illustrated books in the set look at arms and equipment of the Union and the Confederacy. But what these books actually are, uh, they put together all the great maps and illustrations from the old Time Life series of books on the Civil War. And so with this atlas, you get a really excellent set of maps including half a dozen dealing with the Peninsula Campaign. So if you're a map geek, you'll appreciate this book. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap things up, we have several new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this week, Rebecca, Carrie, and Chris. It's great to have you guys on board. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.